it's not an accident that I asked Rebecca as she came to me and shared her story to give her testimony on this particular day as we are going to be observing the Lord's Supper after I'm done here this morning. I am speaking on the sufficiency of Christ this morning as we end our Christ is Enough series on Colossians chapter 2. I want us to end with talking about the sufficiency of Christ. Now, what if Rebecca had stopped her story before her salvation experience, before talking about this woman at the nursing home that used her last breath to share Christ with her and to remind Rebecca that God loves her, that Jesus died for her, that ever since she was a little girl in this woman's Sunday school class, she had been praying for Rebecca. What if she had stopped her story leading up to that point and then been done? What would you have left with after hearing her story? How would you have felt? First off, why in the world did Brian ask her to talk? There would have been a hopelessness, right? There there would have been an open-ended story that that wasn't satisfying, that was left unended. And you would have said, there has to be more. There's got to be more to the story. That's a terrible story. Especially it's a terrible ending. Why would she stop there? Why why wouldn't she go on? Is, Is there more or is that it? You would have felt very unsatisfied this morning. But as Paul Harvey says, there is a rest of the story. And you heard the rest of that story this morning. And, and, and it's not really the rest of the story because the story continues. God is still going to do more in Rebecca's life. God is going to do more through her life. She is still going to have ups and downs. And until she reaches heaven, the sorrows, unfortunately, probably are not over because we still live in a world of sin and, and death and disease and heartache and imperfect people. There will also be joys and praises and excitement. But the point of the story is this, that Christ was and is sufficient to overcome her hard past, her difficult past, her painful past. He was and is sufficient. And and not only is he sufficient to possibly do it, he is sufficient to have done it. As he said on the cross, it is finished. And while her story is still being written in this life, her eternity has already been written. Her future has been set. Her destination is accomplished. Because my friends, Christ is enough. He's enough to overcome the death of a spouse. He's enough to overcome an abortion. Not only the sin committed, but the pain and the loss of a child. He's enough to overcome an abusive spouse. He's enough to overcome the misuse of his own word. The Bible says that I can beat you. He's enough to overcome the hurt and the anger 
that obviously would accompany that story. Who wouldn't be angry at God? Who wouldn't be devastated? And yet he's enough. No one else could. No one else would be able to overcome that. No one else would be able to turn the heart of a Rebecca Koenig, having gone through all of that, to joy, to peace, to love. But Jesus could, because he's enough. He is sufficient. Now, I wouldn't have to read the word of God to you today. Now, hear me here. I, I need to, I have to, I'm compelled by the Holy Spirit and, and by God's word to do it. But you've heard this story this morning and I believe that alone is enough for you to know that he is enough, that he is sufficient. That if he can overcome all of that in Rebecca's life, he can do it in your life. But this isn't just a story or one person's experience and she found the crutch of religion and was able to overlook all of that. The truth of God's word tells us that Christ is sufficient for every person. And so let me turn your attention to Colossians chapter two today as we finish this chapter and as we conclude this sermon series Colossians chapter 2, and we will be looking at verses 16 through 23. So if you uh, are able, when you turn there, would you stand with me this morning in honor of God's word? Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. And Lisa, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here, and then I'll go back and pick up what I had on the paper before um, the, the text. And Paul writes this, Therefore... Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason, by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You can be seated. Father, I just pray for wisdom and strength and guidance and words this morning by your spirit to speak to your people this morning. You have a message for them today, oh God, and I pray that that would come out loud and clear for your glory. And Father, for all of our collective benefit this morning, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Let me step back a little bit because you may be asking how is this text, what does it have to do with the sufficiency 
of Christ, and, and we are going to get there. But let me do some, some build-up work, some background work here. Probably since the dawn of time, after Adam and Eve on into Cain, who went out and, and, and man-made human religions begin to spring up throughout, people were in search for God. And the effort of most religions, of all religion except for Christianity, is for man to find God, for man to make his way to God. And we have found over and over and over that on our own, without any external help, we are incapable of getting to God. And so mankind has employed all sorts of tools and resources and, 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 and elements outside of himself to try to make this journey to God. We've used nature. We've made sacrifices. We've given what we have. We've cut ourselves. We've sacrificed our children. We've tried to do good and be good and used teachings and rules to get to God. And, and so the need for this term that I'm going to call intermediary an intercessor, someone in between, or something in between to help us get from A to B, A being where we are and B being where God is. This need for an intermediary is something that has been a part of religion for, well, pretty much forever. At least since the fall occurred when man sinned and we became separated from God. And for years, man looked for this intermediary that would be sufficient, that would be enough, that would work, that would get us to God. And even for the Jews, the Israelites who had the covenant of God, who had the word of God, who had the law of God, even they found that this law, even though it was right and good because it was from God, it was insufficient ultimately. It never quite did the trick completely and eternally. There was always the next sacrifice that needed to be made. There was always the next law that needed to be obeyed. And, and they would obey that and they would do that sacrifice and then it would need to happen again. And so you find yourself, or at least they found themselves in this rat race of trying to do enough and it was never enough. Now, let me just stop there for a second and, and ask you if you can identify with that. If you can identify with feeling after all of your toil and work and effort that you come to a point where you just feel like it's just not enough. And there's more to do. And I'm never finished. It's never done. And I'm tired. Now, I feel that way, this side of the cross, having trusted in Christ as my Lord and Savior. I can't imagine how they must have felt without that. And then Jesus comes on the scene. And he becomes the, the perfect God-sanctioned intermediary for mankind. 
The sad part is that man continues to seek to, seek to undermine, undermine the sufficiency of Christ as the perfect and only intermediary between man and God. They continue to seek to undermine him by using other completely ineffective methods. And that's what we see happening here at, at the church in Colossae. And and they were not very many years removed from the cross. They were a first century church. Started just a matter of decades after Christ, if that. And now we see them trying to have Christ and something else. As if Christ isn't enough to complete the work of salvation in a person's life. And so they had tried to replace Christ as the way to God with several other things. Now we're going to talk about what that is in just a little bit, but what are some examples of this in our day and age? How has man now tried to replace Christ as the way to God now? They would see it as the way to prosperity, as the way to success, as the way to happiness. Good works, morality, Philanthropy, other religions, prayers to the saints, venerations of Mary. And, and this morning I am going to use the Catholic Church as an example. Not to say that every person in the Catholic Church is an unbeliever or evil. There are believers in the Catholic Church just as much as there are unbelievers in the Baptist Church. But it would seem that they promote the insufficiency of Christ through their belief in praying to the saints and to Mary amongst other beliefs and practices. Now, I'm very careful when I say anything negative about other faiths or denominations. I do it very carefully, very prayerfully, and uh, very thoughtfully. Through their practices, they promote the insufficiency of Christ. And And I think when there's an untruth, whether it's in our church or somebody else's, you've got to point it out. This Catholic, universal church as they call themselves, from which we were birthed as the Protestant church. And this is part of the reason why we were birthed from them, Martin Luther and and the other uh, Protestants, the other reformers. We've talked a few weeks ago about sola scriptura, sola de lo gloria, scripture alone, glory to God alone. And we talked about this by Christ alone, through grace alone, all the alones. But of course, they pray through saints. They go through Mary. You have to continually go to a priest for confession confession and penitence in order to receive forgiveness. And in that system, the priest is supplementing Christ, if not outright replacing him as the intermediary. And so my point this morning is not to dog on other churches or faiths. Please hear me in saying that. My point is is to uphold is to magnify Christ as sufficient. I do not need a priest or another believer or even Mary to get to God. Because, my friends, let me say it again, and you're going to get tired of me saying it, Christ is what? He's enough. He is absolutely enough. 
First Timothy two chapter or First Timothy chapter two verse five says, "For there is one God and one mediator, also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus." He is enough. He is all we need to get from where we are to where God is. For all you reds out there needing your B, Jesus is the way to your B, okay? For those of you that don't know the color code, don't worry. It, type A, red, whatever you want to call it, the personality that has to have an end result and is trying to get there. Jesus is that way because he's enough. And what I want to do this morning is I want to give you three ways Christ is absolutely sufficient for all believers. Three ways that Christ is absolutely sufficient for all believers. The first way that we see Christ is sufficient for all believers is that Christ is sufficient for salvation. He is sufficient for salvation. Now, I know you're saying, but Brian, this isn't Sunday school. I'm not six years old anymore. We don't need to talk about this. I get that. And, and I believe that you do. At least I hope that you do. I hope after sitting under my preaching for two plus years, you understand that Christ is sufficient for salvation. But here's the thing. The church at Colossae were just years removed from Christ. They had Paul as their teacher. He had started this church. And they were already going to other things. It was not Christ alone. It was Christ and. And so let us be reminded from verses 16 through 18 that Christ is sufficient for salvation. What does Paul say here to uh, these here at this church? Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. What is, re- what is he referring to? Well, my mind automatically goes to the Jewish law. Now, of course, he's talking to Gentiles here as well, and they had their own religious practices. They had their own holidays. They all had their own days where they honored the other gods. And so they had festivals and, 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 and parties and rituals in which they honored these other gods to make God happy. That's what it's about, right? So that he will like me, so that he will accept me. And so he's saying, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So what we have here is people who get saved, Christ is enough, they start to leave everything else, and then you have these teachers in the church who come in and say, no, you still need to do these other things. You still need to be circumcised. You still need to um, follow all the rules and regulations or you can't be saved. Now, I'm not talking about it's still good to be obedient to Christ and it's what he expects. I'm saying they were saying, if you don't do these things, you aren't saved. You're still going to hell. You don't have salvation. You don't have God's favor. You must do A, B, and C plus Jesus in order to be saved. But what Paul is trying to help them understand is that, yes, all the law was important. It was good. But what does he say in verse 17? These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance, the real thing, what matters is Christ. Those were all types and shadows. They, they were second-rate precursors. They were shadows to Christ who was the perfection and fulfillment of all those things. 
And so the substance, the real thing, belongs to Jesus. Now that he's here, we don't need those anymore. Because he's trumped all of that. You don't need that anymore. Because he's the true fulfillment of what those inferior things pointed to. It's not to say, once again, that the law was bad because it was created and given by God himself, but it was never meant to be our all in all. You know, I don't get up here and go, Mosaic covenant, you are my strength when I am weak. You are the treasure that I seek. Law, you are law in all. I don't sing that, do I? Because you wouldn't want me singing that anyway. Probably wouldn't want me singing it at all. Amen. Thank you. So that's why I don't. But all those things were tools. They were the pointers. And this is the best illustration that I have. I'm driving down the road. My check engine light comes on. Do I go get the check engine light fixed? Is, is that what I do? Do I go to the mechanic and say, I think my check engine light is broken because it's on, which that would be ridiculous because it's, it's working. It's on, so it can't be broken, right? But it's on, so I need you to fix my check engine light. No, it's pointing to something else that really needs to be fixed. And so I take my car to the mechanic and say, hey, my check engine light came on. Something's wrong. You need to figure it out and fix it, or at least call me first, and then I can decide whether to get it fixed or not, because, you know, I have to get my car retagged for a couple months, so I can hold off till then. Do you see what I'm saying? It pointed to the substance. It pointed to what really mattered. The law was part of the types and shadows that the Old Testament is full of, all waiting for and pointing to the promised Messiah, God, who would send him, Jesus, to fulfill it. And the law was primarily there to let us know how insufficient we were and that we needed someone who was sufficient. And then there's peril going on in verse 17. I'm sorry, verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Do you see there? They're praying to someone else. They're looking to someone else. They're they're hurting themselves. Asceticism, that's what it means. It means a tough life. It means I've got to um, not eat and and not drink and, and hit myself and put myself through hurtful and painful things so that God will really love me. Now, I don't know if any of you do those things literally today. But, but have you ever felt like, man, I've got to be miserable in order for my life to honor God? I've got to go to the hardest places. I've got to do the worst things. I've got to talk to the meanest people. And if I'm not miserable, God's not happy with me. Because if I'm happy, I must be doing something against what God wants for my life. Because God would never want that. Now, once again in context... There are times God calls us to hard things. There's sometimes God leads us through hard things. They're hurt, they hurt, they're painful. But I don't think the automatic assumption is if I enjoy it, God must hate it. If I'm not miserable, God must not be favorable toward me. What what did Jesus say? I came 
that you might have joy and my joy might be made what in you? Full, complete, whole. But that's not what they were being taught here by these false teachers. They were taught that they had to also go through angels. They had to also be miserable and inflict hurt and pain upon themselves. And actually, just the opposite was occurring. By bypassing the word of God and the spirit of God, they were opening themselves to all kinds of demonic activity because Satan knows how to give counterfeit experiences to people. Satan knows how to counterfeit what God offers. So we can feel like we're having a very spiritual moment. Whether in the joy and the emotion or in the pain and the agony, we can feel like we're really doing God a favor. And, and, and I think God just says to us all the t- so often, I have nothing to do with that. That's not me. Because you're looking for it outside of my son. And what's the application here? Well, have you ever put more stock in some other method or way to meet with God than through Christ by his word and by his spirit? Now, the obvious ones are uh, going to see a fortune teller or, or having a seance or using a Ouija board. You know, these things that we as Christians goes, yeah, that's what the, the bad people do. But what about when we seek the emotion of worship? When we say, if I go to church and I don't feel emotion today, you don't get me ramped up, you don't make me excited, your message doesn't really challenge me or make me feel good, then I haven't met with God today. Do you see how that's looking to meet with God apart from Christ alone? Now, now hopefully, You are encouraged today. Hopefully you are challenged today. Hopefully you connect with the Spirit today through worship. But hopefully you've been doing that all week as well. But are you coming today to meet with Jesus? Or are you coming today to feel an emotion? To be excited? To be challenged? Or are you coming to meet with Christ and whatever he does, you are okay with? If he encourages you, awesome. If he challenges you, awesome. If he teaches you something, awesome. But if you just get to enjoy relationship with him and nothing else happens, is that enough? And what we see here is this mystical ceremony that these people were teaching, these ascetic believers, these people who said you had to do all these things and, and, and go through all these rituals and meet all these standards for God to love you you recognize that it's just false humility. They put on this display of godliness, much like the Pharisees and Sadducees did, but it was just a false humility. That was actually their expression of pride because what they were saying is, I don't need Christ to do all of it for me. I can do some of it or all of it on my own. I've got this. I came across a story about an owner of this restaurant in Oregon called The Worst Food in Oregon. That's what he titled his restaurant. The Worst Food in Oregon. That was the name of the restaurant. And, and, this, and, the, and, and the, the quip or the phrase or the saying of the restaurant is, um, it is the worst food you ever ate and the service is even worse. 
Now, if, if you read that on Yelp, would you say, that's, I got to go there. I'm, I'm, we got to go eat there, honey. And, and, and actually, the serv- the, as it says in the story, the, the restaurant is unusually clean. The food is very good and the service is, is done well. Diners are served generous portions. The prices are very reasonable. And of course, as you know, the name, or as you've probably guessed by now, the name is just a gimmick. It was the idea of the owner who tempted to call his food the best food in Oregon, and then he figured he might get more attention by calling it the worst food. And it works because he's always busy. There's a line outside the restaurant. He does very good in his business. Of course, customers who came first came primarily out of curiosity, but they liked the food, they enjoyed the experience, and so they came back and they told others, and now it's a very uh, famous restaurant, at least it was at the time, in Oregon. And so with a twinkle in his eye, when customers ask him what they should eat, the chef says, take your money and spend it in another restaurant down the road. (laughs) Of course, they laugh and they order and they eat their food. But it's not because they think it's the worst food in Oregon. It's a gimmick. It's fake humility. And so self-denial can be merely a cover for self-promotion. You know that, right? And this is something we have to be very careful about ourselves is, is our advocation of self-denial and teaching others how they should look and setting ourselves up as the example, it's really just a cover for self-promotion. And worse, it's idolatry because we're looking to something else. We're bowing down to something else to get us to God. We need to hurry here, so let me move forward. Christ is sufficient for salvation. He is all you need. He did everything. He did the work. He was good enough. He was holy enough. And his death on the cross, his sacrifice was enough to pay for your sin, whatever that sin may be and however numerous it may be. You don't need anyone else or anything else. You need Jesus, and he's enough. Christ is sufficient for salvation. Number two, Christ is sufficient for sanctification. Verse 19. And not only, not only not holding fast the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from who? The growth is from who? It is from God. He is enough for our sanctification. Now, I know sanctification, that's, a, that's one of those big churchy words that we throw around sometimes. And, and all it means is growing in Christ, growing in your faith, being more like Jesus today than you were yesterday. That's sanctification. That's being made more into his likeness. And who is it from? It is from God. And if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why is if you were still alive in the world, you submit to regulations? Once again, it's not the following of laws. Because what we get here, and I'm not talking doing it for the right reasons. We are to be holy as Christ is holy, as God is holy. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. So please don't hear me saying you don't, it doesn't matter what your life looks like. If you just say you trust in Jesus, that's enough. That's not what I'm proposing this morning. But what I am against today is the people who 
bear down, grit their teeth, and say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get it. I've got what it takes. And whatever God tells me to do, I'm going to do so that God loves me, so that he's happy with me, and so that others look at me and go, wow, I really wish I was like them or him. It's the duty-driven attempt to be all that we think God wants us to be. Bare-knuckled, axe to the grind, hard work, buy your bootstraps kind of morality. And we think that's enough. We think that means that Christ is working in us and that we're the kind of Christians that everyone else should long to be like. But do you understand what Paul is saying here? You're living up to other standards, but you're not living up to God's. Because God's standard is dependence. It's selflessness. It's the, it's the awareness that I can't and only he can. And so we seek him with dependence. We seek him with humility. We look to him for everything that we are to be in Christ. He saves us and then he sanctifies us. He is the one who does the work. Now, we seek him. We seek him through his word. We seek him by the spirit. We seek him in prayer. But we only do it because we're looking for him to do what we cannot do on our own. It is a seeking independence. Not independence, but in dependence. It's a crawling through the desert on our hands and knees looking for the oasis because we know if we don't find it, we're dead. It's the begging and pleading with our mom and dad when we're this tall, asking them to get the piece of candy on the top of the shelf because we can't reach it on our own. That's what the seeking looks like. And in that, God grows us. He builds us up and he transforms us into what he wants us to be. Because all this empty legalism is just an appearance of godliness but it is just a form of self-reliance, self-promotion, and pride. And it has no value in regard to sanctification, holiness, or true self-denial. Let me give you quickly two types of legalism here. The type by which we try to uphold biblical principles on our own power and strength in order to earn God's favor. And number two, the type in which we use our own set of erected requirements of conduct beyond the teaching of Scripture to exclude others from our own little Christian group, whether it be church membership or just a sense of elitism by one or more groups in the local church. So so do you hear what I'm saying today? There's two types of legalism. It's the one where we uphold real biblical principles on our own power and strength in order to earn God's favor. So it's the type where we say, I want God to love me. I want him to accept me. And so I'm going to try to do everything that this book tells me to do in the hopes that maybe he will accept me. And maybe there's a genuine heart there. But it is a foolish attempt. And then there's the type by which we make up our own rules or we add to what's there. You've got to get up at 5 a.m. in the morning and have your Bible study immediately and you've got to spend at least two hours in prayer or God will not be happy with you. And, And do you know why we do that? Because usually we ourselves don't live up to our own standards. 
But we want to feel above others. We want to feel elite. We want to feel better than. And we want to impose our rule on others. And both of these types of legalism are a symptom of unbelief. The first being unbelief in regard to ourselves that God cannot or will not save us apart from our own works. And the second being unbelief in relation to others that God can make his will known to them and incline them to do what he calls them to do. Let me read to you this quote and then we'll move on to the next way in which Christ's absolute sufficiency is seen in the believer's life. This is from John Piper's book, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. And this is what it says. For the legalistic morality serves the same function that immorality does for the antinomian, the one who's against living a certain standard of lifestyle, or the progressive, namely as the expression of self-reliance and self-assertion. The reason some Pharisees tithed and fasted was the same reason some university students take off their clothes and lie around naked in the parks in Munich and Amsterdam. The moral legalist is the elder brother of the immoral prodigal. They are blood brothers in God's sight because both reject the mercy of God in Christ as a means to righteousness and use either morality or immorality as a means of expressing their independence and self-sufficiency and self-determination. And it is clear from the New Testament that both will result in a tragic loss of eternal life if there is no repentance. And so let us not be deceived by outward appearances. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He keeps his deadliest diseases most sanitary. He clothes his captains in religious garments and houses his weapons in temples. So for those of us who are legalistically looking down on the immoral and the unrighteous, And for those of us in our freedom and in our immorality and in our sense of I can do whatever I want to do and don't fence me in, looking at the self-righteous, holier-than-thou attitudes of the legalistic, whatever you want to call them, both set up in their positions of elitism over the other, one saying you are um, a self-righteous hypocrite, and the other saying, you are an immoral, godless person. Apart from Christ, they're both in the same place. They're both lost. Neither is better than the other. My friends, he is sufficient for salvation. He is sufficient for sanctification. But it is only through and in Christ that either of these come. And apart from Those things, as Solomon says, we are just chasing after the wind. Now here's where it all comes full circle in my mind. Because the third way that Christ is absolutely sufficient for all believers is that Christ is sufficient for satisfaction. And so as as I end today, I want to just clear up a possible confusion. Because once again, with all this rebuttal of legalism and moralism as a way to God, it would be easy for some of us to say, see, I don't have to live by any rules or regulations. I'm saved by grace through faith, and I don't have to live up to anyone's standard. I'm free to do as I will. And the problem with this is God's word in 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16 tells us to be holy as he is holy. Or don't forget what Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey my what? Commandments, that's right. 
And so we still have to deal or struggle with these verses in the New Testament, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament after the cross where we are told to be holy as God is holy. And if we really love Jesus, we will obey his commandments. Now, sometimes that's a tough pill to swallow because we are on this side of the cross. We know that grace covers our sin and we say, well, I'll try to do my best, but if I mess up, I'm still forgiven and God still loves me. And to a degree, that's right. That's true. God loves you. That's why he sent his son so that he could love you in spite of you. So how do we deal with this issue? The issue with this is all the moral acts and legalistic practices in the world do not free us from our desire to sin and our desire for the things of the world. In fact, it seems as if the more we put our legalistic access to the grind, the more we struggle with sin. Have you found that to be true in your life? The harder you work, the harder you try, the more you bear down and say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to have my morning quiet time and, and I'm going to stop doing this or I'm going to start doing that because it's what God wants from me. Do you ever feel like the harder you try, the worse you fail? And one can only resist the struggle so long until he or she gives in or perhaps just gives up because it's too hard. So how do we avoid getting wrapped up in legalism or thinking that we have to earn God's love through our good works but still live out the relational obedience to Christ we are called to? I think that's the million-dollar question this morning because he is enough. He's sufficient. So how does he help us do this? Knowing that we don't have to live a certain way to earn his love. And at the same time, because of his love, we are called to live a certain way. And I think the answer to this question is, we must find something that is more thrilling, more satisfying than than the things that we know are disobedience to God. Than the things that we struggle with outside of God's love and God's word. We must find something that thrills us more than those things. Because yes, sin is satisfying for a while. It's fun for a time. But as you know, or probably found out, it turns sour very quickly. And it's not that it turns sour, it's that it was sour all along, but its true flavor was masked by our eagerness and immediate pleasure. There was a story I read called The House, or just House, actually. It's not The House, it's House, by uh, um, well-known Christian fiction authors, Frank Peretti and Ted Decker. And, and, and this book is about two couples who are unbelievers at the time, and, and they end up in this abandoned, or so they think, abandoned house together. They get lured into it, and then they get trapped in it. And the house seems to be alive and malicious all the while they're trying to escape uh, the murderous games of a homicidal maniac. So that's the story, and I don't want to ruin it for you if you're going to go read it. But it's an allegory of of this, this flesh, this body of death that we are trapped in, and Satan who comes to steal, kill, and destroy us. And once again, without giving away any spoilers, if you haven't read it, there's a scene at the beginning of the book where the two couples are sitting down to dinner at this strange house, and the food that they are served looks really good at first. It's rich and decadent and delicious. But but as they gorge themselves on it, the food begins to be seen for what it is, rotten, soured, and full of maggots. And and some are sickened by it, and some continue to devour it. 
My friends, that's how it is with sin. That's how it is with the things that God says we should stay away from. He's not limiting us. He's trying to be helpful. He's trying to save us. He's trying to give us life. And so he tells us, don't do those things. But what does he ultimately do? He gives us his son. We are looking for something that is more pleasurable, more thrilling, more satisfying than that out there. And so he says, I've got something for you. It's my son. He is good. He is peace. He is love. He is joy. He is life. And if you will pursue him and turn to him and away from everything else that the world offers, you will finally know what true and real and abundant life is.